Let us hear the word of God. Matthew sixteen thirteen. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Trust the Lord to bless His Word to all of our hearts. Let us pray one last time and ask for His help. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we do come one final time to ask for Thy help in the preaching and in the hearing of the preaching of the Word of God. O Lord, we know that Thy Word is powerful. It is all-prevailing. It will accomplish that which You send it to accomplish. And so, Lord, we ask that as Thy Word is preached this morning, You will undertake for us. Lord, that You'd help us all to hear it aright. Lord, that we would be able to take Thy Word and apply it to our lives. We pray, therefore, fill us all with the Holy Spirit and give us help as we seek to worship Thee through this means, hearing Thy message that we trust will be in season for each and every one that is gathered here. For we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the verse we're going to focus on is verse 18. You know that the past two Sundays we've been considering this mini-series of Christ and His threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And so we've come now to consider that kingly office of Christ. We've considered him as prophet, that he is God's representative to men. We've considered him as priest, that he is man's representative to God. And now we come to consider him as king. And as king in that office, he rules over all as God and man. He represents in the other two offices and he rules in this office. And so, verse 18, we read, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so it's important for us to note the context of this verse. It occurs in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is uh, very often associated more heavily with a kingdom focus. You see all the fulfillment of the kingly prophecies concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's really the greater context of this. And you see that in this portion, Christ has asked His disciples a fundamental question. Who am I? 
Who am I? That's what he's asked his disciples. And that's the context of when this verse occurs, coming off the back of Peter's divinely inspired and spirit-led response. As the disciples are giving these possibilities of what men say, who men say that Christ is, the Lord reveals to Simon Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is the basis for what is said in verse 18. And really in verse 18, what Christ is teaching us is that He is the sure foundation of His kingdom. And that based upon Himself, He is going to, without fail, advance His kingdom against all His enemies. And so, as we've come to again another huge subject, and we can only consider one aspect, at least we're limiting it to that, we're coming to consider this aspect of His kingly office. We think of Christ as a, as a king who rules over all as God and man, and it's so comforting to realize, even as we begin to consider this subject, that this is a king that will never be replaced. Think of what we read in Acts 2, verse 30. Speaking of David, the Apostle Peter, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And so as we come to consider this king this morning, Christ has been established on His throne. And He will never be removed from that throne. He is risen. And He has ascended to heaven with His arms stretched out, His hands stretched out as we read in the end of Luke's Gospel to bless His church. That is the final picture that we have of Christ ascending into heaven. His arms, His hands extended to bless. And so we live in days of great anxiety. Do we not? We live in days of great doubt and discouragement. You look on the left hand, you look on the right hand, you can find something with very very little effort. You can find something to be anxious about or doubtful about or discouraged about in the world. All the things that are going on, all the troubles of the church, all the different battles that we're facing individually and corporately in the body of Christ. And so this is a subject that Christians desperately need to be grounded in. And this is a text that every Christian needs to saturate their soul with. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a little bit of a side note, but when I was newly converted, I used to think about this text in a different way than I do today. I I used to envision that God's people were in this fortress, right? We're held up there and and no one's going to get to us because God's protecting us. Christ is protecting us. But that's not the imagery of this verse. The key to this verse is the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. This is not a defensive text. This is an offensive text. The gates of hell speak of the defense of Satan's kingdom. In other words, the church, 
Christ through His church is advancing toward the gates of hell. And they're not going to prevail against us. That's the imagery here. And it becomes a completely different picture when you see it in that light. And perhaps you saw that long ago and you're thinking, well, duh, but for me it took a little longer. And yet today I'm greatly encouraged by it. And so, from this text, as we think about the kingly office of Christ, I want to speak to you about Christ advancing His kingdom. Christ advancing His kingdom. And the first thing we want to consider here from this text is that Christ has a kingdom. Very simply, Christ has a kingdom. Upon this rock I will build my church. My church. That's the phrase we want to consider here. Christ has a kingdom. You see also in light of verse 19, He speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so we have this picture here of this kingdom of Christ advancing toward the gates of hell. And we recognize then Christ has a kingdom. The first thing we want to see about that kingdom is that this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Christ says that it is my church. And he speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he said to Pontius Pilate when he was being interviewed by him in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. Else would my servants take up arms and fight. And so as we think about it as a spiritual kingdom, we recognize that it is therefore unlike other kingdoms. It is not seen in the same way as other kingdoms. And yet, it surrounds all other kingdoms. And it is vaster than all other kingdoms. It encompasses all other kingdoms. And so it is a spiritual kingdom. That's very important to recognize here. But the other thing we want to see here is that even though it's a spiritual kingdom, this kingdom has a visible representation on earth. This kingdom has a visible representation on earth. Again, he speaks of my church. But in connection with verse 19, even though he refers to the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he is giving authority to officers who will be ministering on earth. And so this brings us to consider the fact that there is a visible representation of this kingdom. And our larger catechism helps us here as the question is asked, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? In question 45, and it says, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. By which he visibly governs them. And so really we're being pointed to here the importance of of the visible church, the importance of the local body of Christ and how He has ordained it to be so that He would visibly rule on earth through local churches. And so, it can be seen, this kingdom that we're thinking about, this visible representation of it, can be seen in the assembly of the called out community. Those who've been called out of the world into a local body into the greater body, the universal church, but then that manifests in being united to a visible body. And so, wherever there is an established local gathering of true Christians, there is a partial 
visible manifestation and representation of the kingdom of Christ. Now, what is the point of that? The point is, we may not be much to look at this morning. You, you recognize that. And other churches may not be much to look at at various seasons. We don't think of ourselves as, as people who are a part of this great and glorious kingdom. We don't think of ourselves in those high and lofty terms. And yet, we are a visible manifestation of the kingdom of Christ. And it's so important to remember that as you gather here. As you go out in this community, a visible representation of His kingdom. Established with authority by the king himself. And you you see this language used of the church throughout the Old and New Testament. And so it's helpful for us just to note this imagery. You don't have to turn to all these, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we have the title that even though it's applied to Timothy, I suggest and we'll see that it's applied to it can be applied to all believers. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's the title. A good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's the title given to Timothy, and I suggest it can be given to us all here this morning, that we are soldiers in Christ's army. Because... That's our title. And what do we think of as our activity? Our activity in this kingdom. When you think about that, you think about what we read in Ephesians chapter 6 concerning our activity. We're told we wrestle, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is written to every Christian to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because you're wrestling not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so that's the activity of every child of God. To have the full armor of God clothing you. You're a soldier in Christ's army, engaging in spiritual warfare. Well, what are our weapons? As we think about that, we have, we have our title, we're soldiers, we have our activity. Well, what are our weapons? And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us there, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. They're, they're spiritual weaponry. That we, use. we are to gird up our minds with the truth of God's Word. We are to engage in a spiritual activity. That is our warfare. And if there's any doubt about everyone being involved in this, there's a wonderful thing said of God's people in Exodus chapter 7. In Exodus chapter 7, the Lord is preparing to bring His people out of Egypt. A picture of redemption as we know. But it's interesting what he says in Exodus chapter 7 to Moses regarding his people. And he says, verse 3 of chapter 7, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies 
and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now, the word and, you can see is italics, really it could read, bring forth mine armies, my people. So that what we have here is the Lord telling Moses, you're going to bring forth all these people and I call them mine armies. And that, that phrase, mine armies, has the idea of a, pers- a mass of persons organized for war. You think about that. Think about that picture. Think about the fact that they're being called out of Egypt. That's a picture of redemption. He's calling them His armies. And then think about what they're going to do. The Lord is going to use these people to invade the promised land and to conquer it. Can you not see the picture in regards to us? That the Lord has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness, right? And He has therefore brought you out to organize you as a mass of persons organized for the purpose of spiritual warfare on the behalf of our King Jesus Christ. Now that, that tells me, in light of this text, something of the purpose that Christ has in this world. If you think the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, what assurance we have. He's called us out of darkness into light. And He's organized us as people prepared for war and He's preparing us for war. And it's spiritual warfare. And He says in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. In other words, nothing's going to stop my kingdom. This is my kingdom. So you have our title, our activity, our weapons. It's all of the redeemed organized for this warfare. And you think about your... Yourself, just to humble us all, the quality of the people that God calls out and what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so let each of us here remember our place in this kingdom is a matter completely of God's grace and nothing of us. So Christ has a kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It has a visible representation. But also this kingdom includes everything. Let us not lose sight of that. Don't don't miss that. This kingdom includes everything. It includes the heavens and the earth. The entire universe and all it contains have been given to Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so as one man rightly said, beautifully said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is the sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Nothing outside of His kingdom. We have to lay hold of that because we can, we can tend to think that, of course, there, are, there, are, there is an opposing kingdom. There are opposing kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness. And yet, the kingdom of darkness is not in any way really a threat to Christ's kingdom. 
Because Christ possesses everything and He holds it in His power to take and to give to people on earth the authority that He ordains all going forward to His consummating purpose. So it includes the heavens and the earth as we think about it including everything. But it also includes the righteous and the wicked. That's important for us to remember. It includes the righteous and the wicked. The parable of our Lord in Matthew 13 bears this out. You see what He says regarding the interpretation of this parable to His disciples. In Matthew 13, verse 37, And He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, verse 41, they shall gather out of His kingdom. In other words, this kingdom has within it the righteous and the wicked in terms of its vastness and everything that it includes. And yet there's coming a day where all the wicked will be removed out of the kingdom. But they are not outside of the dominion of Christ. That's the point. That's that's why we're taking time to think about this. Because it includes everything. Christ has authority over it all. Nothing is outside of His dominion. And so this kingdom includes everything. So it's spiritual. It's visibly represented partially on earth. It includes everything. And this kingdom will one day fully manifest. This kingdom will one day fully manifest. What our Lord says in Matthew 16, 18 bears this out. He says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Build. That word build communicates this picture to us that there is a goal or a point of completion that this is all driving to. It's not as if Christ is saying, I will build my church and it's just going to perpetually be builded. No, currently this kingdom is only partial and imperfectly seen. It contains friends and foes. It is still marked by the effects of sin. But what we read in Revelation 21 is coming. What we read there in Revelation 21 regarding the coming of Christ's kingdom. Revelation 21 verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. 
What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. And when He takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day. Glorious day that will be. This kingdom will one day fully manifest. And the second thing we want to consider here, not only that Christ has a kingdom, but the second thing is that Christ is advancing His kingdom. Again, straightforward, but let's think about it. Let's think about how this is happening. He's advancing His kingdom. We know that. It's straightforward from the text. But how is He doing it? Well, the first way He's doing it is that it is advancing based on who Christ is. It is advancing based on who Christ is. He says, upon this rock. Upon this rock. And so, the fundamental question here is, what is this rock? No doubt you know this is a controversial verse of Scripture. What is this rock? Is it Peter? Is it the Apostle Peter? Well, why do some think it's Peter? Let's not just you know, count that as invalid at, at the start. Why do some think it's Peter? Well, they think it's Peter uh, because of the connection with his name. You know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock. And so they argue that way. Then in verse 19, I will give unto thee, speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so they argue, therefore, that, see, it's referring to Peter. He's the rock. But, just to throw that one out of the water, we read in the very next chapter, in verse 18 of chapter 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now he's speaking to the entire group of the apostles. And so, it wasn't that the Lord is necessarily singling out Peter to the point where he's excluding the other apostles. But that's where some conclude. So that's partially why. The other thing they will say is that, well, what our Lord said of Luke, of Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, where he says, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren." And that word converted there has the idea of restored or when thou art repentant, coming off the back of Peter's denial of the Lord. And he says, strengthen thy brethren. And so they conclude, well, Peter has this chief place among the apostles to strengthen his brethren. He's he's the chief of them. And then in light of that, they say, Ephesians 2.20, that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles. Peter's the chief apostle. And so therefore, he's the rock referred to, therefore, He is the one who is the head of the church. So why can it not be Peter? That's why they say it's Peter. Why can it not be Peter? I suggest to you that it cannot be Peter, first of all, because of the context. Our Lord asks a fundamental question here, and that is the focus. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That is the focus here. Not Peter. Peter is not the focus. And so when Peter gives his answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
I suggest to you the Lord is referring to that based on the context. This rock. In addition to that, it cannot be Peter because of what we see happen to Peter later on. In Galatians 2. Where Paul says that he withstood him to the face because he didn't behave himself rightly among the brethren. He, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles in front of the Jews. And Paul charges him in that chapter of marring the gospel picture of the division between Gentiles and Jews being taken down. And so, Peter had to be withstood to the face. And what our Lord says about this rock, that it's on this foundation that He's going to build His church, it can't be a flawed foundation. There can't be any room for error in this foundation. And I know we're taking time with this, but I just want us to be clear that this rock is none other than Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Son of God. And this is so clear. When you, when you zoom out and you see the context of just the other Scriptures in the Old and the New, you think about the one who's called the rock in the Old Testament in Psalm 18 and Psalm 61. The Lord is the rock in those passages. And if we continue on to read in Ephesians 2.20 that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. And if there was any other doubt, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, makes it abundantly clear that it could not be anyone else. If you back up to verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so, I trust it's clear. It is Christ. And none other can ever be this rock. Even as you think about the Old Testament prophecies, and we're not going to go look at all the Old Testament prophecies, but we were reading in family worship the other night, Genesis 22. And I take time to, to share this with you because I had never thought about this. In Genesis 22, they've just come off the mount from going to sacrifice Isaac. You know the story. And this is what the angel of the Lord says to Abraham regarding his seed. Verse 17, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's the phrase. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham, says the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. He will possess the gates of His enemies. He is the rock referred to here. And so as we think about that, what is Christ saying? Upon this rock I will build my church. Well, He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that immediately points out all Old Testament imagery that refers to the Messiah and all the statements regarding who the Son of God would be and what He would do. And in other words, it's His person and His work that are the basis upon which the church advances and is builded. As we think about His perfect righteousness 
in fulfilling the law of God, in His perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God upon His people. And that proclamation of that message and the Spirit applying that purchase of redemption to people, that is how Christ is advancing His church upon this rock. His redemptive work is the only proper foundation to build on. And the great thing about that, as we think about that this church is continually building to the point of completion, the building can never grow too great for this foundation. It can never, it can never be weakened. It can ne- there can never be anything laid on this foundation that is greater than it can bear. Because it is Christ, not a mere man. And so, as we think about those in the Roman Catholic Church, as we think about those who are deceived and are following a false gospel, this is their message that Peter was the rock. What a disgrace! to a man who would have never claimed anything of that nature. They need to hear the true message. They need to hear that Christ is the rock, not Peter. And so it is advancing upon who, based upon who Christ is. But also, it is advancing through the exercise of His power. In Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. I will build my church. Through the exercise of His power, He's advancing this kingdom. Christ as Almighty God, through the mere exercise of His will and His all-prevailing providence, is advancing His kingdom. All power is given unto Him. And we need to remember that. As you you are living in this sin-cursed world, and as we talked about at the beginning, all these different things that we can look upon and find discouragement and be anxious about it, all power is given unto Him. He is advancing His church through the exercise of His power. And so, what we read in Daniel 4.34 needs to take root in our hearts in connection with this text. Listen carefully to this. And you think about this the next time you're, you're reading the news or you're listening to the news or you're seeing whatever's going on in the visible body of Christ, whatever controversies or whatever that the devil would use to discourage you and put you in a place where you are hindered from service, remember this in connection with this verse, Daniel 4.34, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Nothing. And He, that is God, doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? That text we need in connection with this to guard our heart. That is not to say that there's not a biblical response 
to the things going on in this world. Proverbs 22.3, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. We're not supposed to just put our heads in the sand about things. But yet, if we ever come to the point where we begin to make an idol, we we begin to so focus on everything that is going on that is negative against the church of Christ, that it hinders our service or puts us in a place of anxiety. We have to come back to the foundation. We have to come back to what Christ has said, I will build my church. So it is advancing through the exercise of His will. And it is advancing through the preaching of the gospel. It is advancing through the preaching of the gospel. Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's building it upon this rock. So like we've already said, the connection. He says, I will build it. And yet, what we're pointed to here, what we're pointed to throughout the rest of the New Testament as we see the unfolding of this, we see that Christ uses means. He is a king upon His throne who has sent forth His servants to preach this message and build His church. And so one of the primary means that He uses is the preaching of the good news of who He is and what He's done. This is so clear in the King's commission to His subjects. In Matthew 28, what does He say? At the, the very last thing He says to His disciples in Matthew's Gospel After all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Why all nations? Because I'm going to conquer all nations. Because all of them are under my dominion. And that is glorious. When you think about going out in the name of Christ, you go out. In the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom all power in heaven and earth has been given. And you can say, as Paul did, that you're a wise master builder. You're co-laboring with God. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. calls us co-laborers with God. What are we laboring in? We're laboring in the building of His church, His kingdom. Christ uses all His people to do this work as we've already noted. So it is advancing through the preaching of the gospel and it is advancing through the praying of His people. It is advancing through the praying of His people. I will build my church. This King has not only given us a message to proclaim, but He has given us a petition to pray. Thy kingdom come. Matthew 6.10 Thy kingdom come. A short petition. uh, Three words. Thy kingdom come. And yet, so much is contained in that prayer that we need to be mindful of and encouraged with as we pray it. And to help us with that, our Westminster divines in the larger catechism 191. This is a long quote. And I don't like long quotes, but it's worth it. So try to stay with me. Larger Catechism 191. What all is included in this petition? They write, 
in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances. Purged from corruption. Countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. That the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins. And the confirming and comforting and building up of those that are already converted. That Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of His second coming and our reigning with Him forever. And that He would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of His power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. I know that was long. But praise God, when you pray, Thy kingdom come, you pray for all those things. You pray for everything in relation to His kingdom coming. And, His, and even as it follows, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The connection of those. You are praying for all of this because it is all included in His kingdom. And the last thing here, about Christ advancing His kingdom is that it is advancing constantly. This is important. It is advancing constantly. He is advancing it based upon who He is. He's he's advancing it through the exercise of His will, the preaching of the gospel, the praying of His people. And He is advancing it constantly. I will build my church. I will build. There's no exception clause in that. There's no time since He said those words that this has not been true. And so Christ is, through the exercise of His will, by the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Gospel, the praying of His people, constantly, continually advancing His kingdom. And this is what He does in subduing sinners to Himself. This is what He did in subduing you to Himself. Our larger catechism doesn't say this, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism notes that phrase, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to Himself. And I love that phrase because it it notes the fact that you had to be subdued, that you were rebelling against this king, and yet He conquered you and called you to Himself. And so we say it's constantly advancing. What do we mean? Because don't we read... In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, the Apostle Paul said that Satan hindered us. Writing to them, he says, Satan hindered us in coming unto them. What are we to conclude from that? Christ says He will build His church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Paul says, Satan hindered us. I submit to you that though individual efforts from our perspective may be hindered, and days may appear very dark, the cause of Christ is still advancing. It's regardless of our perspective, our limited perspective. You think about the early days of the church. There's so much uh, today that people will, you know, 
talk about as far as the darkness and everything. And it is dark. But you think of the early days of the church with Nero on the throne. And you think of what happened to those Christians. Being tormented and persecuted the way they were. Tossed into the Colosseum to the lions. I read one account that Nero would stake Christians on poles after he had covered them in hot wax. And they would burn as torches in his garden. That's a dark day. It's a dark day today, but that is something at least we have not seen. And that was at the very beginning. And yet even then, even then in the midst of that darkness, Christ was still advancing His kingdom. His kingdom has has grown. It is as that mustard seed that has grown into the tree where the birds now come and lodge in its branches. It has never ceased to grow. What What was said of Him in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. He is ruling in the midst of His enemies until they are made His footstool. It is as the Lord said to the Israelites as they are preparing to go into the promised land and conquer that land, which is a picture of the world. Exodus 23.30 By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. By little and little. And so, it's been by small steps throughout the ages that the church has now come to the point where she is, where she can be found in countless places across the world. When she began, the New Testament church that is, began visibly with 120 people in a room praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. By little and little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. The third thing, the final thing, in regards to this text. Christ has a kingdom. Christ is advancing His kingdom. The advancement of Christ's kingdom cannot be stopped. Leave here today with that. The advancement of Christ's kingdom cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped by any spiritual kingdom. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail. In other words, shall never prevail. At any time prevail. Satan do what he will. Christ's kingdom will not be defeated. In other words, what Christ is saying here is that he is going to storm the gates of hell. And there's nothing Satan can do about it. Not only is he going to storm them himself, but he's going to storm them with his people. Because I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so it cannot be stopped 
by any spiritual kingdom, and it cannot be stopped by any earthly kingdom. No earthly kingdom. No, no mayor, no president, no king in anywhere, no emperor can ever stop the kingdom of Christ because every earthly kingdom is under the dominion of Christ. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? You think, we're not going to turn there, but you think of what is said in Ezra chapter 1 regarding Cyrus. Cyrus, at that time, one of the most powerful men in all the known world. And yet, we're told there that the Spirit stirred his heart to send God's people back to the promised land so that we have the return from the exile. What are we meant to learn from that? That God rules over the mightiest of men. And they do according to His will. It cannot be stopped by any spiritual kingdom. It cannot be stopped by any earthly kingdom. It will conquer every other kingdom. There's nothing that you see in this earth that will withstand Christ's advancement. No one single opposing force will be left. When Christ returns, every kingdom will be conquered by Christ Himself. He will come. He will come and He will conquer all. And yet, people will say, where is the sign of His coming? Where are the promises that you're trusting in? As we read in 2 Peter, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. This, this here, this is your king. This is his kingdom. Ground yourself in this reality and do not lose sight of it. Get this text into your heart and hide it there. What we sang is so true. Fierce may be the conflict. Strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard raging, victory is secure, for his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Let us briefly pray before we sing. Our gracious Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We bless Thee for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee that there is no man that can stay Thy hand or say unto Thee, What doest Thou? Please gird our minds and our hearts with these truths and help us to without fear without fear of anyone or anything, serve Thee in this world. Please hear our prayers, receive our thanks now as we sing. In Jesus' name, Amen.